All right, guys, we're taking a break this week from First Peter. Um, if you if you got your Bibles, turn to Psalm two. We're going to look at Psalm two today. If you guys remember, it's been a few months ago. I think before we started First Peter, that we we went through Psalm one on a on a Sunday, and um, many theologians think that Psalm one and two are actually bracketed together as one. So I told you we would definitely. Look at Psalm 2 sometime soon. So uh, after finishing chapter 1 in Peter, we'll just take a break this week and look at this psalm. Uh, David is the writer of Psalm 2. Psalm 1 was not the first psalm. They're not put together in chronological order. The first psalm would be Psalm 90, written by Moses. But these, I think, were rightly placed, uh, many many think, by Ezra in the beginning of of the Psalter. And Psalm 1, if you guys remembered, we looked at, which we sung today, really looked at the idea there's just two groups of people in this world, right? you got the righteous and the wicked. So, I mean, that's, that's how the Psalter starts out, is that you got the righteous and the wicked. We looked at the, the way, really the narrow way, and just the warning of that. Uh, Psalm 2, we see, uh, we're seeing, really what I want you to see today, God, is, guys, is Psalm 2 is an accurate view of what's going on in our world right now. If you ever wonder why the world is the way it is, Psalm 2 will tell us in many, many ways. Um, you know, it cuts right to the chase, this psalm does. It's, uh, it really shows us that if, that if sinners were able, they would overthrow God. If they were able. This would not be what you call a feel-good um, devotional psalm. But this is really a description of human depravity when we look at this psalm. It really shows the, the foolishness of sin is what we're going to see. The foolishness of sin, the foolishness of sinners to, to, to rage against the Creator. <clears throat> really the, the stupidity of sin is what it, what, it, what it is we see. You know, what, what do we see when we turn on the news in our day? We see humanity... Painted with a brush that says mankind's basically good, right? The leaders are wise. Trust your leaders. All of these things. Psalm 2 is going to really speak to that. What Psalm 2 is going to remind us of, which is really throughout Scripture, is that there are none righteous in this world. There's none good. There's none who seek after God. And so obviously when we look at this psalm, the immediate context is really describing David as the anointed king of Jerusalem. We know that David was victorious in many battles in which he led, and he had many enemies both in Israel and amongst the nations. Through the covenant that God made with David, he was, he was the appointed and anointed king over Israel. Okay? But what we see more than anything in this psalm is a type. And it's real easy to see. It's pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see that even on the surface. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, whose kingdom would endure forever, that God promises uh, in 2 Samuel, in the Davidic covenant. And so what we're seeing is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. We're going to look at the Lord Jesus Christ today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, I'm going to read Psalm, Psalm chapter 2. It says this, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. 
saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He, may, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let us pray. Father, we come to You today, Lord. We come humbly before Your throne today, Lord. Recognizing as Your people that You are the King. And we come to You as both our King and our our Father, Lord. And we ask You, Lord, I ask You today to speak to the hearts of Your people today, Lord, that they would be encouraged. Lord, amidst a crazy world, Lord, that they would be encouraged and strengthened in their faith. Remembering who it is that we serve, Father. We thank you and love you in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 2 is easily broken up into four parts. Uh, And that's how I've got the sermon broken up as well. Verses 1 through 3, we're going to see the rebellion of the nations. Verse 2 through 4, we're going to see the response of the Father. Verse... uh, or I'm sorry, verse 3 through 6. Verse 7 through 9, we're going to see the reign of the Son. And lastly, we will look at the reverence that is required. <clears throat> so let's start out in verses 1 through 3. We're going to see the rebellion of the nations, or you could say the rage of the nations. The rage of the nations. So starting out in verse 1. <clears throat> Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? I'm going to go ahead and read verses 2 and 3 as well. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So we see in the NAS, it says, why are the nations in an uproar? That word just meaning, think of the roaring of the sea, the storm of the sea, the restless and the violent waves. The King James says the rage. Why are the, why are the nations raging? You know, this is nothing new in David's day. Again, this, is, this psalm was written at a particular point in time. But this is nothing new in, in David's day. This hatred, this, this rebellion, this raging of the nations. Really the hatred of, of, and rebellion of that which is righteous. Isn't that not what we see in our day? And we're seeing it more and more. Just the hatred of what is good. Of what is of Christ. We have to remember as we approach the psalm, and I think most of you guys would already realize this, but it would help us as we approach this psalm and remember that there is no neutrality in this world. Christ said, you're either for me or against me. And sometimes that's very, very clearly manifested. And we see that in this psalm. And I think it will really help us as we go through this psalm, we're going to refer back to this verse many times, to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And what we call the covenant of grace, but I'm going to read the, just the first half of that verse. 
You remember God said this to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And we're going to see it continually. In the psalm we're looking at, different parts of the Old Testament, different parts of the New Testament, right down to the very end. When Christ returns, we're going to see that part of that promise that, that, that the seed, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the righteous and the wicked, the sons of God and the sons of the devil. And we see it manifested in our world, but you gotta, we have to remember that. That's the reality that's going on in our world. This, this war that's been going on from the beginning. Psalm 83, we have um, a little bit of the same language. Psalm 83, 1-5. Says, O God, do not remain quiet, do not be silent, O God, do not be still, for behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have some they have said, Come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against you they make a covenant. You see it? It's right there in Psalms 83 as well. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. This is nothing but... When we see these wars and we see these nations and these leaders raging against God, it comes, it comes straight from Satan. We've got to remember that. We saw it in the, uh, in the Tower of Babel, if you guys remember that. We're not going to go back there, but if, but if, you, uh, if you would read that account in the Tower of Babel, they, the people said, we will not be scattered abroad. What did God say? Go fill the earth, right? They said, we will not. So you can see the rebellion. The nations. We're going to see the nations, the people. Right down to the, to the simple people like you and I. To the very leaders, the small and the great. Do we not see that today, guys? Just the hatred of Jesus Christ? And it's going to intensify. John 3.19, we see it in Jesus' statement. The light has come into the world. Right? Speaking of Himself. And what did He say? How would men react? Men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So, so what about in Christ? What about in, in the time Christ was upon earth? Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter four, really quick. We can see a few different things in this text. We can see real clearly where this psalm is referred to, so we don't have to wonder who this psalm is talking about. The New Testament authors tell us who it's talking about, but we also see the same theme. The rulers. Let me, let, me, let me read verse 2 before I, or, or the second half of, um, yeah, verse 2, I'm sorry. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 28. This is when Peter and, uh, I believe it was Peter and John, yeah, had been arrested upon the release. It says, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. 
And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, there we see the author of Psalm 2, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. So now we know who he's referring to, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Well, there's a lot in that text if we ever go through that, but we see, we see it in the days of Christ, right? The rulers conspiring together, Jews and Gentiles coming together for their hatred of Jesus Christ. Do we not remember how much Jews and Gentiles hated one another? But what did they do when it comes to Christ? They conspire together. The hatred of mankind for Jesus Christ. You could see the same thing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They disagreed on many things, but what did they agree on? This man needs to be put to death. He's a blasphemer. So that's what we see. that The leaders coming together, taking their counsel together. And you can see that even in our day. Sinners of all kinds of different groups that maybe would oppose each other in many ways, but their hatred for Christ is seen very clearly. He says, um, look, look at that word, why? I mean, in verse 1, why are the nations in an uproar? It could be phrased like this, why bother? Why bother? It is in vain. When we understand who Jesus Christ is, who God the Father is, when they've done all that they can do, it is pointless to rage against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who reigns with all power, with all sovereignty. Why? Why bother? Why are the nations in a rage? Why are they in an uproar? If you notice that verse that we just read in Acts, did you notice the end of that verse that God predestined all this to occur? What's going to happen? The nations can come against God. They can come against Christ. But the church is going to march on, is it not? The church of Jesus Christ will march on. Christ will build His church. Amen? The gates of Hades will not prevail. They said, why are the nations in an uproar? The peoples devise in a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together. Against the Lord and against His anointed. I think that's rather obvious. The Lord Jesus Christ. The anointed, the Messiah, the Christ. If you notice, when they quoted the verse in the New Testament, they just substituted anointed for Christ. And then verse 3. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That is simply saying, we will not be under His law. We will not be held by this burdensome law of God. We will not be told what to do. He will not reign over us. That's the language. Cast their cords from us. We will not have Him reign over us. We, what does our world say? We will be free. Is that not what we see? 
We want to be free. We will not have His law reign over us and tell us about our sexual life. We will not have His law reign over us and instruct us on marriage. On the gender that we marry. We will define what marriage is. We will not have His law and this narrow message ruin our freedom. It's my body and my choice. That's that's what this phrase means. We will not have God tell us how many genders there are. We will determine that. We will be free. And what does Isaiah 5 say? Speaks directly to our culture. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's the, that's the day and age which we live. As if we didn't know that already, our country is under judgment. And we see it by these very things. So we see the, we see the rebellion of the nations. All the way back in Genesis all the way through the Psalms of the Old Testament, Christ's day, we see the leaders conspiring. We see our culture crying out. We will not be, we will not be told what to do. As a culture and as individuals, individual people, they rage against God. They rage against God. That, that's what the issue is. I will not be told what to do by nobody, including God Himself. So secondly, verses 4-6, through six, let's see the response of the Father. <clears throat> he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. The response of the Father. First of all, He who sits in the heavens. That's just reminding us, guys, that God reigns from heaven, Right? You think, God's, you think God's wringing His hands about the nations in an uproar? No, we're going to see in just a moment that He's not. But He, he, he reigns and He rules. He's not bothered one iota by the plans of mankind to overthrow Him. I mean, that, that would be like, you know, an, F, an F5 tornado could care less what's in its path. It's going to destroy it. The power, right, of an F5 tornado. And what a poor comparison that is to our God, right? He's not bothered one bit as he sees the nations and the leaders conspiring together. What is it? What does one, uh, Psalm 115.3 remind us of? Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And then it says, he laughs. So we know it doesn't bother him. He says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The Lord, the word is Adonai. He's literally the master of the universe. God sits in the heavens and He laughs. Now this is not like a, a gleeful, humorous laughing that God's doing. He's not up there <laughs> doing that. What this is, guys, try to communicate this. It's an expression of ridicule. Okay? It's an expression of ridicule. Again, not a humorous laugh. What it is, is he knows the absurdity 
of these puny, I'm trying not to sound like the Hulk in the Marvel series, but these puny humans, right? I mean, you're talking the God of the universe and these, the nations are raging. We're going to overthrow God. And, and, and he knows the absurdity of their plans, right? He knows what the outcome is going to be as his enemies rage against him. It's, it's, it's holy mockery from heaven is what it is. And so I tried to think of, of something to illustrate this. Think of something, maybe a sport that you played or any, any kind of things that takes practice and skill and, and, and you've, you've worked at it, okay? You're, you're, very, you're good at it. And somebody comes along who has no experience saying, oh, I could do that. I could, I could beat you at that. And so I thought, of that. I thought back in my own life. When I used, in high school, I used to box amateur boxing. Now, I wasn't no pro or anything, but you'd have these people, like my friends at school, I mean, I'm there pretty much regularly on and off for three years. You're working hard. You're putting in the work. You're honing in on your skills. And then you have your friends at school go, oh, I can, I can, I can spar you. No problem. And so I remember thinking back, this very thing going, that's absurd. I know what the outcome is going to be, right? And you guys have probably experienced that, right? You're a runner. I mean, that would be like me coming out and saying, Carl, I bet I could outrun you in four miles when you're running, right? You're going, okay, let's try it. The absurdity of it, right? It, this is absurd. I know what the outcome is going to be. How much more with God, these nations, these, these prideful, arrogant, again, people, right? We're dust. And we're going to tell the Creator to get off your throne? He laughs. Do you think God knows their end? <laughs> Obviously, God is omniscient. He's decreed the, the beginning, the end from the beginning. Psalm, Psalm 37, 12 and 13 says this, The wicked plot against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. What does it say in that psalm? The Lord laughs at him. Why? For he sees his day coming. He sees his day coming. I've told my wife, it's real easy, guys. If you ever, if you get discouraged looking around the world, right? Because I think we've referenced these psalms at different times when you, you when you think, man, the, the wicked are just prospering. You can go to Psalm 37 or Psalm 73. And you'll see their end. Both of those psalms tell what the end is going to be for those. They're not, they will not get away with it. So he knows their end. He sees their day coming. He laughs. And in verse 5, says this. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Saying, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So he not only knows the absurdity of their actions, but it goes deeper than that. He despises them and their arrogance. You don't want to be on the other end of a holy God despising you in your pride and your arrogance. But that's the language going on here. And it's not the only place in Psalms, okay? Listen to Psalms 5, verses 4-6. through We hear the same kind of language. God's view towards the arrogant, ungodly men and women who dare to shake their fist at Him. Psalm 5, verses 4-6. through Probably not going to be on Caleb tomorrow morning. 
but it is the word of God. For you are, uh, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor no evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors. I think that's even a stronger word than hate. He abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Now, in case you're sitting here, maybe you've never heard those scriptures. I would I would say, just as a side note, how do you escape that perfect, holy anger and hatred and wrath of God? Flee to His Son. That's where the love of God is displayed. But Psalm 7, verses 11 through 13. And we could look at several more. We're just going to look at this one here. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. That is judgment language. I think it was Spurgeon in his um, commentaries over the Psalms that he, he said something to the effect that God, with his, with his bow that he's got drawn and his arrows, he will not, he never has and never will miss the target. He will never miss the target. He always hits the target when he releases the wrath of his fury because he is a just and holy God. So we see that he, he sees the absurdity of their actions, but he also he despises them in their arrogance. And he says this in verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. But as for me, in other words, you have spoken, now listen to what I have to say. Regardless of all that you have conspired. Okay, Just picture the Father saying this. Regardless of all your plans, all that you've conspired, all that you leaders and all you wise men of the earth have come together against me, I have installed my King. And we know that He has done that from eternity past. It's already a done thing. God's not reacting. He's declaring, as we'll see in a minute, His decree. I have installed my King from eternity past. And so His enemies, it, it, we see the, we see the, verse 1, they do this in vain. We see His enemies trying to prevent what He's already done. It's already done. He's decreed these things. He is a sovereign God. A holy God. A just God. And so they're trying to prevent what's already done. It's really seeing Satan going back to Genesis 3, right? It's seeing Satan in his stupidity and his hatred of God to try to overthrow God. That's what got him kicked out to begin with. But we see it. Again, remember Genesis 3. Your, your seed and their seed. There's a war going on and we see it in this psalm right here. And we see the stupidity of it. Man trying to overthrow God. How stupid. You see how stupid sin is, guys? Sin is stupid. Sin results in stupidity. 
That's, it's not an intellectual insult. It's a reality. It's a moral thing. That's what the Bible said, means when it says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. It's a foolish thing. And I think something very good to take, guys, from, uh, from this whole verses 4-6, through six, something to remember, that, that when He's not immediately judging, right? When we don't see God's judgment coming immediately, and we think, when, O Lord, when, O Lord, remember this, guys, then when He's not immediately judging, it's because He's laughing. He's sitting in heaven laughing. He knows what's coming. He knows the final result. And so that, that should give us comfort as God's people. Okay? God is not bothered by any of this. God is just way more than we are. And nobody will get away with one sin. Okay? Which is obviously why we preach Christ. Because we wouldn't either. Because He's just and holy. It says, verse 6, As for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain, just meaning, guys, that Christ is reigning as King at the right hand of God right now. And He also reigns through His church. And remember this, we'll, refer, we'll look at this again a little later, that, that, that John chapter 5, we see that the Father commits all judgment to the Son. He will be the judge. Okay? He will be the judge. Now verses 7-9, through nine, we're going to see the reign of the Son. So we saw the the rebellion of the people. We saw the Father speak, and now we're going to see the reign of the Son. Now God the Son speaks. It's His turn now. <clears throat> Verses 7-9, through nine, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Here's the decree. We know that's in eternity past. He said to me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of Me, and I will surely give the nations as Your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So we see that His kingdom, the kingdom of His Messiah, the kingdom of His anointed one, is founded upon a decree. A verse that, uh, that we've went to many times in this church, just through our, in our different Bible studies, Isaiah chapter 46, 9-10. through really gives us just a little picture into this decree. Isaiah 46, 9-10 through says this, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. You hear that? Is there any doubt in that? God says, my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish my good pleasure. So we see a little bit about it as a decree. This, this kingdom of His Messiah is founded upon the decree before the foundation of the world. The very thing they're fighting against, it's already done. It's already happened. Christ is His King. He is His anointed King. The writer of Hebrews uh, repeats it. You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Christ alone has preeminence in heaven and on earth. Right? He has authority on heaven and on earth. But I think it's real important that we look at that phrase real quickly. Um, where he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Because that's a, we need to understand what he's saying and what he's not saying. Okay, first of all, let's look at what it does not mean. This does not mean, this phrase, today I have begotten you, 
This does not mean, as many falsely think it means, that, that it's saying that Christ came into existence. As if some, as a, as a some point He didn't exist. Okay? And that God the Father created Him. That's not what this text is saying. That's what an ancient heresy called Arianism in the 4th century originated with a um, church leader of that time named Arius. That's what he taught. He taught that the Son was created by the Father. Okay? He said this, there was a time when the Son was not. And many people, they get it from texts like this. Taught that the Son was created by the Father. This was officially deemed as heresy at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. Okay? He was, he was really what you call the father of now modern day Jehovah's Witness. So that is not what this text is saying. What does it mean? Okay? Hopefully you can see this, guys. What does this phrase mean? Today I have begotten you. In Acts 13.33, you don't have to turn there. You can if you'd like, but um, I think it gives us understanding in it. A little bit of insight into what it means. In Acts 13, Paul was speaking to the men of Israel. Okay, He was speaking to the men of Israel about the history of their people. Starting with God choosing Abraham. Went through Moses, went through David, and pointed out Christ all along, the Messiah, all the way to John the Baptist, and then finally he gets to the Gospel. He gets to Christ as the fulfillment of these things. That's in the first part of Acts 13. And then in verse 33, he says this, and we preach the good news of the promise made to the fathers. What he was telling them. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. And then in verse 34, if you read that, He specifically, specifically clarifies Jesus being raised from the dead. He's speaking about His resurrection. And He attaches that to this phrase in the second psalm. Today I have begotten you. This phrase, today I have begotten you, is not talking about His birth or His coming into existence. But rather that His being the Son of God was made manifest to the world through His resurrection. Today I have begotten you. It's to say this, to put on public display that He came from the Father by raising Him from the dead. That's what that phrase means, okay? It's not some heretical teaching that says at one time Jesus did not exist and now He does. So the writers of the New Testament, Luke in that sense, he attaches that back to the second psalm and tells us what it means. Speaking about His resurrection. The Son of God was made manifest to the world through His resurrection. Romans 1.4 Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. Okay, That's what he's referring to in this psalm. Today I have begotten you. Then in verse 8, he says, Ask me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Okay, I want to be really, really careful here. I want to be really gentle. 
Um, you know, because we're going to get into different views of eschatology. <clears throat> so this verse is used by many um, to really to really attach to to worldwide missions. Okay, the idea that that that. Um, that there's going to be a point in time when, when, when all the nations, meaning the majority of people in each nation, will be will be converted, and so I understand that. I understand. So I want to approach it very, very, very gently, um, which what I think is really, really trying to balance out what it's saying, what I believe it's saying, what it's not saying, because obviously we know that God has His elect in every nation, right? There's going to be people from every tribe, every tongue, every language. I don't think any of us would disagree with that. And I think that is referring to God given the Son of people. Obviously, His elect. But I think we have to be careful to just automatically take verse 8, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and attaching it to Matthew 28 and saying, see... All the nations are going to become Christianized through the gospel. I think we've got to be careful of that. Why? Because of the very next verse. The very next verse, guys. It's connected. He says, Ask me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. And then what does he say? You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So regardless of how many people are going to be converted at the end, I don't think you can just automatically use this text to apply to worldwide missions. Because this is judgment language. Very clearly in the context. I mean, it's real clear. Um... Look at Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, I think, has very similar language to Psalm 2. Revelation 19. Think of Psalm 2 that we just read through and that we're reading through. Listen to to Revelation 19. You're going to hear a lot of the same language. Revelation 19, we're going to read verses 11 through 21. He says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Obviously, I think we all see this as Jesus Christ. And the armies of heaven, or and the armies which are in heaven, clothed with fine linen, white and clean. It's picturing, picturing the church, right? Being, being made clean through the righteousness of Christ. We're following him on white horses. From his mouth. Okay, think of the language in verse 8 that we or verse 9. We'll get back to that in a moment. But from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. I, okay, I have heard this text applied that this text is just talking about 
Christ's judgment on Israel in AD 70. Okay? This language is clear that this is talking about the nations. The same thing that Psalm 2 is talking about. The nations. So whether we're looking at Matthew 28, discipling the nations, this is nations here. And what's happening is judgment on the nations. He says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. Go back to, don't, don't turn, but what did we just read in Psalm chapter 2, verse 9? With the rod of iron. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of His fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh He has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh. Remember the leaders that's conspiring against Christ? So that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. These same ones that God promised in Genesis 3, this this war that is, that is satanic in nature that we see in Psalm, the nations, the small, the great, the leaders, the hatred of Jesus Christ. And God sits in the heavens and laughs because He knows that His King is coming. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled. Here, you hear the language? Inspired by satanic forces. To make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. What I see is clear, consistent, hermeneutic from Genesis to Revelation. We see it in the Psalms. We're seeing it fulfilled fully and finally on the day of judgment. The beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with the flesh. I just wanted to read that because there's so much, so much similar language in this psalm. We see the judgment of the nations. And, and this, this is not an eschatological sermon. But I do understand that, you know, that down through history we have different men identified as the beast. Nero was a beast, but I don't think it's just Nero. I think it's a picture. The, the beast is still present today, I believe. The spirit. All of these things. But what I see here, what I see in Psalms, obviously God's going to give His Son a people. Okay, And we can disagree how many people. All's, all's I know is He has a people whom He's going to save. From every nation. But we cannot. We cannot separate verse 8, which I hear quoted all the time. But they don't ever quote verse 9. This is judgment. He's going to crush His enemies. The very nations He's speaking of. In verse 9 He says, You will break them with a rod and iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. So we know that God is going to be merciful. He is going to save a multitude that is innumerable, but He is going to judge those who continue in the rebellion. John Calvin says this, Although therefore Christ moved not a finger, 
Yet by his speaking, he thunders awfully enough against his enemies and destroys them by the rod of his mouth alone. They may fret and kick and with the rage of a madman resist him never so much, but they shall at length be compelled to feel feel that he whom they refuse to honor as their king is their judge. In short, they are broken in pieces by various methods till they become his footstool. And this is where I want to balance it out of the whole, what, you know, what is he talking about by giving him the nations? Because in Psalm 10, it'll talk about, which is repeated in Corinthians 15, his enemies being made his footstool. I think the very healthy balance, guys, is these enemies are made his footstool one of two ways. It's either through conversion or through judgment. It's the same language as Philippians chapter 2. Every knee is going to bow. That's the way I see this. Every knee is going to bow. Every knee of every person in every nation is going to bow to Jesus Christ. And so we know that when we bow, that's why we preach the Gospel. We plead with people. Right, Shiloh? We beg people to come to Christ. To bow your knee to Christ. To bow your knee to Christ. To become His footstool through what? Through conversion. But if you refuse, your knee's still going to bow. You'll, you'll become His footstool on what we just read in Revelation. When you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, and He, and he, and he, and he crushes you. But regardless, we see the King, right? We see the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Judgment has been given to Him. He will fully and finally judge. And so lastly, in the last three verses, guys, we see the reverence that's required. The reverence that's required. What do we see in this last three verses? We see a Gospel warning and a Gospel plea. A gospel warning and a gospel plea. Verse 10 says this, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. He starts off with the word now. What does that mean? Do it now. You've been warned. Do it now. Do it speedily, right? Don't delay. Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Show discernment. Be wise. What is he saying? Leave your foolishness. The foolishness of thinking you can overthrow God. The foolishness that you think that you can shake your fist at God. Have you heard people say that? Well, I'll just tell God how it is on that day. You won't say anything on that day. Show discernment. Be wise. Leave your foolishness. You're warring against God. That's what all this language is. Individuals and nations and leaders all alike are warring against God out of hatred for God. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We hate His law. We will not be governed by His law. And he's saying in verse 10, Show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Do it now. Life is fleeting like we looked at last week. 
Verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Oh, you hear the language, worship the Lord with reverence. Come and submit to Jesus Christ, the King that we've been looking at. The King that He reigns. All judgment has been given to Him. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees everything we do. Everything we think. There's no secret sins in the eyes of Almighty God. Come and worship the Lord with reverence. Meaning come with fear and awe. That fear of God that we talked about last week. That awe, that healthy reverence. What does it say? The fear of the Lord is to depart from evil. The psalmist is saying repent. Turn from evil and turn to Christ now. Do it now. And we should have the same emphasis. Right? Come now. You might not have tomorrow. And then it says, come and worship Him. We sang it. I made a mental note to remember the song that we sang, right? He is worthy. Christ is worthy. He is the only one worthy. And the psalmist is saying, come to Him and worship Him. The One who is worthy. The One that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The Lamb of God. The same One, right? Who we looked at coming in fury. But we know He came as a Lamb. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. This is who He's pleading. Worship the Lord with Reverence, rejoice with trembling. The title of the message, Kiss the Sun. My version says, do homage. Obviously, which is what it means, but who doesn't like that phrase? Kiss the Sun. Verse 12. Obviously, we see this warning for the kings, right? For the rulers, for the leaders. But don't think for one minute this warning is not for every person. Kiss the sun. The sun who we've seen, who is the king, who is God's anointed one, his chosen one, God's Messiah, the only one, the only way. Kiss him, submit to him, bow to him. Our last heading was the reverence that's required. And so we can see when we know about Christ, when we attach all the truth that we've looked on about Christ today, when it says, worship the Lord with reverence, the reverence for God that is required is to come to peace with His Son. He is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Listen to what John 5.23 says. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. You have the authority, beloved, to tell people you must come through the Son. He is God's anointed. He is God's Messiah. He is the one who said, You are My Son Today I have begotten you. 
Jesus Christ and nobody else. And it was demonstrated, right, through His resurrection from the dead. So the proper reverence to come to God is to come through Christ. Repent and flee from the wrath of God. He says, do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way for His wrath may soon be kindled. You hear that? Soon. It may soon be kindled. You may be going through your life and God's wrath, His arrows that we talked about, may strike you right in the heart soon rather than later. What is it? 160,000 people die every day on average in this world? And God's wrath is coming upon those who die in their rebellion. And then, and then how beautiful the end of the psalm. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The same One. The same One who is King. The same One who is Lord. The same One who is going to judge. It says how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Take refuge from the storm of God's wrath in Christ. Right? We need to hear this. We need to be reminded of this. That's the message that we have. Think of all the judgment that we read about in this in this short psalm. All of the judgment, all of God's anger that we saw, all of His fury that we saw, all of His, his scoffing at sinners, all of His fiery arrows, His sharpened sword that we read about. And think about the fact that all of that fell upon His Son at Calvary. Every single bit of it. For those who believe, His arrows, His fiery shafts, it hit the target at Calvary. Piercing His Son. He was wounded for our transgressions as His sharpened sword of the Father slew His own Son. That's why it says take refuge in Him because He bore all of this judgment that we've been reading about for those who would repent and come to Him by faith. Take refuge. How blessed are all who take refuge in Jesus Christ. And so for you, Dear Christian today, those of us who have taken refuge, I would like to encourage you that because you have taken refuge in Him, not to fear the terrors of men that we read about in this psalm. The nations are going to rage, guys. The leaders of this world down to your neighbors and your, that don't know Christ, they're going to rage against God and against His anointed. But we don't have to fear the threats of men. Men are like grass, right? So don't fear. Be encouraged. Be bold. Be bold to preach Christ. Obviously, the imperative in this verse, in this psalm, is in this verse, right? Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. For those who have not kissed the Son, take refuge today. Refuge in this Christ. In this Christ who bore our sin 
in His body on the cross so that we could be with God. And we know that as we looked at earlier in the text, He was raised from the dead for our justification. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for uh, even a, even a, a psalm, God, in your, in your Word that is so heavy with judgment. God, that as Your people who have taken refuge in You, we can be encouraged. We can be encouraged, Lord, that as we read about in Your psalms, Your holy hatred for sinners, Lord. You didn't say for sin, You said for sinners. But Lord, we can be encouraged that the unconditional love for sinners is found in Christ. And so we need to warn people. If you don't want to fall under His wrath to take refuge in His Son, His beloved dear Son, your beloved dear Son. And when we're found in Christ, you love us the same way that you love your Son. And Lord, what a, what a miraculous, what a mind-blowing message this is, Father. So I pray that as your people today, Lord, that we will be encouraged, God, to take this message to the world, the very ones who rage against you, the very nations, the very people, the very leaders, whether they're homeless people on the streets or our elected leaders, Lord, the message is the same, to kiss the Son. To take refuge in Him. Like Noah took refuge in the ark. So Father, I pray that Your people are encouraged, God, to see Your Son clearly portrayed as King, Lord. Even though we may not agree on every detail how all of this is going to work out, Lord, we know that Christ is King. And I just pray, Father, that You would inspire us and motivate us, God, and give us energy from the Holy Spirit to proclaim this message. Because we know that the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that is the means by which You have chosen to save those who believe. Preaching. The foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of the message preached. And it's not only speaking about being behind a pulpit, but talking to our friends, giving them a gospel tract, warning people in love to flee to Christ. Lord, we thank You for the reminders that we see in this text, Father. I pray that Your people would be strengthened and encouraged. I pray that You would bless our time of fellowship today, Lord, as we, as we have a meal together, Lord, and just, and just enjoy one another's Fellowship, Father. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.